This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians 1, and I will be reading from verses 18 through 25. I plan on, in February, returning to the Gospel of John. Haven't forgotten about that. We'll get back to that. But uh, for the next couple of weeks, I want to take a look at a couple of passages here from the opening of First Corinthians. So tonight, we will be looking at verses 18 through 25 of chapter 1. Hear now the reading of God's word. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudence. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can once again draw near to your presence, that we can hear your word. We pray that you would prepare our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive it, even as it confronts so much of the things that we seek after and build our lives around. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we consider wisdom and power. These are two of the driving forces in the world. They are what distinguishes people from others. They are principles around which this world and this life are organized. Now, most people would probably say that they would like to have more wisdom. They would like to have more knowledge of how things are and how to get by in the world, an understanding of why the world is the way that it is. There are entire industries built towards acquiring wisdom. If you go to a bookstore, you probably would find a self-help section, how to be smarter, how to live a better, happier, seemingly more wise life in your time on this earth. 
There's a lot of movements, and there's even entire religions organized around this principle of wisdom, seeking wisdom and finding it and wanting to know how we live a life that is wise. Now, many people would probably also say, along with wisdom, they would like to have more power. Many people, many movements and organizations are oriented towards the pursuit of power. For instance, much of what society pushes people towards is to climb the corporate ladder, to chase the corner office, to end up having a bunch of people working for you to do your bidding, to flex your voice, to have influence over other areas of society, over business, over politics, even in the church. On the flip side, we see many Marxist-influenced movements that are popular in our day that seek to dismantle structures of power and redistribute power among different people. Now, wisdom and power are not in themselves bad things. They have their proper time and place in order for society to work, in order for the world to not be chaotic. There has to be a distribution of power. Power, in the broad sense, is simply the ability to do things. You had the power to come here tonight for this service. You had a vehicle, you had gas to put in it. You can buy things, that's purchasing power, that's a form of power. Then power, in a more narrow sense, it deals with influence, it deals with control. Institutions like the government are given by God to promote good, and suppress evil. We see this in texts like Romans chapter 13. And we are supposed to submit to the government in appropriate matters. And then they are responsible for how they steward their power. We need a power structure in the world or we have chaos. We have anarchy. God has given a power structure to the church with properly qualified officers, with elders, with deacons. Now it is much more than a power structure, but it is certainly nothing less. There's a power structure given in the family. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. Children are to obey parents. Again, we need these things because without them, we have chaos. Now, as to wisdom, the Bible has entire books of wisdom. For instance, the book of Proverbs stands out particularly in this regard, and it's treatment of how to acquire and maintain and use wisdom. It explores issues like where is wisdom to be found? How do we live wise lives before God in our days on this earth? What benefits might arise from that wise living? Then we have other books of the Bible like Job and Ecclesiastes that deal with what happens when this ideal breaks down. What about when despite wise living, life falls apart, injustice reigns, and suffering comes. Those are the sort of issues that the Old Testament wisdom books wrestle with. But when we come to our text tonight, we see something of a different vision of wisdom and power than what we may be used to. We see God's wisdom and power portrayed as not only different from the world's conception of wisdom and power, but in many ways antithetical, in opposition to the wisdom and power of the world. God's wisdom and power 
come to their highest expression in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is set against the wisdom and power of the world in Paul's writing here to the Corinthians. So we will look at this text we have read here tonight in four points. First, we see that there is a rivalry. The wisdom and power of God are in conflict with the wisdom and power of this world. We see this in verses 18 through 20. Second, there is a realization of wisdom and power. There is a place where this wisdom and power of God is realized. And in fact, in a person, that wisdom and power is realized. And that is what we see in verse 21. Third, there is a rejection of wisdom and power in verses 22 and 23. Though God has made his wisdom and power known, many resist it, many reject it. And then finally, there is a reception of wisdom and power in verses 24 and 25. Those who belong to God receive his wisdom and power over and against the world's opposition. So again, our four points are rivalry, realization, rejection, and reception. First, we will look at the rivalry in verses 18 through 20. Paul begins verse 18 with the message of the cross. He is talking about the gospel. He is talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know this is what he has in mind because he has just said so in verse 17, where he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So the gospel here is set against the wisdom and power of the world. Now, why is Paul writing these things that he is? What is the immediate context? Well, Paul was writing to a church in Corinth that was having a lot of problems. If you read this book, you see all the different sorts of problems that they had. They had unrepentant sexual immorality while the church was just looking the other way. There were brothers and sisters in the church bringing lawsuits against one another, which was causing public scandal against the church. There were marriages between believers and unbelievers that were breaking down. There was misuse and abuse of the Lord's Supper. There was chaos in their worship as people in the church were misusing and misunderstanding spiritual gifts. All this to say, things in Corinth were not going particularly well. Well, yet another problem they were having, the one that Paul was tackling in these opening passages, is the problem of divisions and factions. The Christians at Corinth were rallying behind their favorite movements, their favorite teachers, their favorite little subgroups of subgroups of Christians. And then there was conflict and rivalry forming in the church along these lines. Some in the church claimed to follow Paul. Some claim to follow Apollos. Some claim to follow Cephas, better known as Peter. And some just threw up their hands and said, Why well, follow Christ? Now Paul, who ironically was seen by some as the one to follow, this preeminent Christian teacher, he is telling them that this devotion is misplaced. Rather, we are all to follow Christ and be unified together in him. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you can probably testify to this sort of problem. Even in the church, we have 
our problem with things like celebrity culture. I, as a younger man, I used to be a part of, uh, used to listen to and benefit a lot the Young, Restless, and Reform movement back in the uh, late part of the first decade of the 2000s. Now, it wasn't an all-bad movement. It did expose a lot of people to Reformed theology for the first time. But the movement did have problems. It was very driven by celebrity. It was very driven by certain pastors, certain big leaders who wrote books and sort of had the say and the sway in the movement. And some of those pastors, some of those leaders, ended up shipwrecking their ministries and even their faith. And with them, many of their followers, because that influence went to their heads. It became about worldly power. It became about making money. It became about influence and so forth. Many wanted to keep their popularity, and so they compromised with the world. They started embracing worldly views and teachings at the expense of biblical truth. And even back in the day when I was a part of that movement, it could itself be very divisive. You'd have a lot of guys who were discovering Calvinism for the first time, at least the, the five points, the TULIP acronym, and they would go into what would often be referred to as a cage stage, the stage where they need to be locked up in a cage until they could settle down a little bit because they were just kind of really fired up about this new doctrine, but they weren't being real nice about it with other people. When one first discovers the doctrines of grace, he can tend to not be very gracious about them. So, in Corinth, they have those kinds of problems. They have this factioning around leaders, around movements. And it got so bad that people were looking down on one another based on who had baptized them. Paul had no interest in these kinds of divisions. He finds it unnecessary and irrelevant and damaging to the peace and purity of the church. So what is important in Paul's view? It is the gospel. Paul here in verse 18 and following is presenting the gospel as the antidote to this factioning. The gospel is primary. It takes precedence over all other things. We see this in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is basically his thesis statement of this passage. Everything else he does here is working out and applying this claim. Now what we see here is plainly stated the rivalry between the gospel and the things of this world. See, the world hates the gospel. It thinks the gospel is foolish. Do you want to be foolish? Do you want to be a fool? Do you want to engage in folly? Because that is, in the eyes of the world, what the gospel is. We live in a world where so much of the church has tried to organize and present itself in a way to look smart, to look sophisticated, to look cool in the eyes of the world. When I went to seminary, I would see my fellow students, uh, the guys I was in school with, getting swept up in all the latest trendy scholarship, because that's what makes you popular, that's what gets you published. But the problem is, so much of it was built on tearing down God's word and God's authority. 
There's a lot of ostensibly Christian institutions and teachers, but they like to read and teach the Bible like unbelievers. We come up with ways to try to Christianize or chase after the wisdom of the world. Maybe if we just give the world what it wants, maybe they'll like us and they'll listen to us. But Paul's statement here lays out just how absurd and vain such approaches are. If we believe this gospel, if we believe in Christ, the world, those who do not belong to God, they're going to hate it. They always have. They always will. But that's only half the story. Because he also writes that to those of us who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. For those who are Christ's elect, those who are chosen from the foundations of the earth, the gospel is quite the opposite of foolishness. It is the very power of God. Now this is, in fact, a theme in Paul's writings. For instance, in Romans 1.16, he famously wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So for the Christian, the gospel is the very power of God. Now this conflict between worldly and godly wisdom was not just a New Testament development. This was always where God's plan and intention was. We see in verse 19 that Paul actually quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 29:14, which says there in Isaiah, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. The wisdom of God on this side of the fall has always been in opposition to the wisdom of fallen and sinful man. Man is in rebellion against God, and apart from the illuminating and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, in that rebellion is where man is going to stay. But to those whom God has called, to those he has chosen, this strange and counterintuitive message makes more sense and is more real than anything else in the world. And what Isaiah has prophesied, Paul declares as having been realized. Look with me at verse 20. Paul begins to ask a series of rhetorical questions. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or the debater of this age? Where do you think you find wise people? Is it at the schools, the universities? How often do we read of efforts in our day at academic institutions to suppress and remove the testimony of Christ? See, the world apart from God's activity cannot understand the gospel, and it hates it, and it wants it silenced. But Paul says that not only will God silence the wisdom of the world, but in fact, he already has in Christ. And this brings us to our second point. After having set forth the rivalry between the gospel as the wisdom of power and God and the wisdom and power of the world, we now come to the realization of wisdom and power in verse 21. In verse 21, Paul writes that the world could not know God through its wisdom. 
There is something very counterintuitive in this gospel by human standards. It sets itself against so many things that the world wants to hold dear. Jesus was God. He had power. He had all power. And yet he took on the form of a humble servant. He put his real and legitimate power over all things aside to become a man. Not even an impressive man. The son of a builder in a small town in an occupied Roman territory. He wasn't born among the kings, or the priests, or the scholars. In fact, it was the priests and the scholars who ended up being Jesus' fiercest opponents. In fact, eventually they conspired to put him to death and succeeded. But there was one problem, one thing that in their plot against Jesus they did not anticipate, and that is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now the resurrection ends up being the jumping off point for so many people who want to live according to the wisdom and power of the world. When Paul went to Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he went to the capital of wisdom. Athens was the city of the greatest philosophers of all of history. All the scholars, debaters, and scribes, the kind of people that Paul was wondering where they are, that was where they would have been. And the hurdle of all hurdles that these wise men could not get over was the resurrection. See, the wise of the world don't believe things like people can die and come back. You can look at the Greek literature and it testifies to this. If you've read Homer's works, the Odyssey or the Iliad, those who died were relegated to a miserable and hopeless afterlife existence. All they thought of of immortality was that basically you commit heroic deeds during your life and then you'll be remembered for them. So you're not really alive. There's not really life after death in any meaningful way, but at least people might remember what you did. There's really not a lot of hope in that. Many Greeks were Platonists holding to the teaching of the philosopher Plato, which for Platonism, basically physical things are bad and spiritual things were good. So in death, your immortal and good soul is finally freed from your mortal and physical body. So to be bodily resurrected as Christ was, and as Paul taught to them, they would think that was something unwanted. They would think that would be going the wrong way to be bodily resurrected. Others of the Greeks were Epicureans. They were mentioned in Acts 17 by, the, by name. For the Epicureans, there was no afterlife or resurrection of any kind. We were all just the product of swerving atoms, and so we might as well just have fun and pleasure all that we can because this life is all we get. That might sound familiar. It's actually a lot like the materialism of our day. So to all of these various Greek views, the gospel was ridiculous. It was absurd. And they reacted to it like something ridiculous. In Acts 17, they laughed Paul out of the building. It is because of things like this that Paul says what he says in the rest of verse 21 of our text in 1 Corinthians 1. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Humans acting on their own wisdom, their own efforts, 
according to their own philosophies. They would never believe anything like this. But God has appointed the means of preaching this gospel to save those that he has purposed to save. God's wisdom and power are realized not in anything the world would recognize as wisdom or power, but in the preaching of this seemingly absurd, seemingly foolish message. But now, having looked at the rivalry and the rejection of wisdom and power by the the sorry the rivalry and the realization we now turn to the rejection of wisdom and power in verses 22 and 23 now in these verses paul talks about what the wisdom of the jews and the wisdom of the greeks would demand i've already talked to you about the greek side of things For them, a bodily resurrection was absurd, it was undesirable, it was impossible, it was was ridiculous. But for the Jews, the gospel was a problem for different reasons. What kind of situation did Jesus come into when he was born as a Jew in a Jewish territory? I mentioned earlier he came into an occupied country. The Jews were captive to the Romans. They still had the temple, they still had some semblance of their Jewish worship, but they were a conquered people. So many of the Jews at the time of Christ were looking for a political liberator. They were looking for someone who was going to throw off Rome, restore the land, and sit on the throne as a Davidic king. And so they wanted these great signs of power, these signs of fulfillment. They wanted the times of Old Testament glory to return. What they got was this Galilean builder's son. The disbelieving religious leaders of Jesus' day often asked him for signs, rather ironically because he did do a lot of signs. He did miracles all throughout his ministry. He healed people. He fed people. He walked on water. He even raised the dead. But those weren't the signs that the Jewish leaders expected or wanted. Even Jesus' own disciples struggled with all this, all the way into Acts, as Jesus was about to ascend into heaven. In Acts 1.6, Jesus' disciples asked him if Jesus would now finally restore the kingdom. I mean, he had died, he had been raised from the dead. What more could they want him to do? Well, they wanted... This kingdom, they wanted this political liberator. Now Jesus would build a kingdom. Jesus still is building a kingdom through his church. But it's not the kingdom they expected. It's not the kingdom we often want. It's not a kingdom of worldly power and influence. It's not a kingdom of territory. It's not a kingdom of wealth. It's a kingdom that transcends all of that. And so, many in Jesus' day missed it. It wasn't what they wanted or expected. They saw Jesus and they found him foolish because he was set against their worldly aspirations. They heard Paul and they thought he was foolish. Like I said, at Mars Hill, the Greeks laughed at him. They ridiculed him. They laughed him out of the building. Only a few there, those precious few that God had called, believed. Well, this wasn't just a problem back then. It's a problem in our day, too. I mentioned earlier some of the ways that the world now seeks wisdom. 
So much of wisdom in our day centers around trying to alleviate suffering, trying to stay healthy, trying to live a life of ease and comfort. It's not entirely dissimilar to the Greek Epicurean scheme I mentioned before. But to this, what do we offer? A gospel of suffering. Christ suffered and died so that his people might live. And we are told that as his people, we may be called to suffer. Otherworldly wisdom will tell us about things like karma, that people who do good things get good things, and people who do wrong get what they deserve. But to this, the gospel says that no one is righteous, and in fact, the only man who ever was righteous, that is Jesus, suffered and died because of it. The world tells us that we can believe whatever we want, whatever makes us feel good, and that we should practice in all aspects of life inclusivity and tolerance. To this, the gospel offers radical exclusivity. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the gospel, by many people, in many places, be it in ancient Jerusalem, or ancient Athens, or ancient Corinth, or even now in America, is rejected. And yet, despite all of this perceived foolishness and absurdity, God does draw a people to himself. He does draw those who do believe. And it is on this note of those who believe that we turn to our fourth and final point. We have looked at this rivalry, this realization and rejection, and now we finally turn to see the reception of God's wisdom and power in verses 24 and 25. Paul makes clear in verse 24 that to those who are called, to those chosen by God, those for whom Christ suffered and died, those for whom his benefits are applied by the Spirit, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel of Christ stands against so much of what the world has to offer and stands for, and so the world tries to tear the gospel and its influence down. The world says you should get money, but Christ was poor. The world says you should want political power. Christ came and found himself at odds with the authorities and eventually died a criminal's death. The world says live a long and happy life. Christ died in his 30s and he faced much criticism and opposition along the way. The world says that this life is all that you have, so enjoy it. Christ was raised from the dead and promises in his word that those who belong to him will be raised as he was raised. This foolishness of God, this plan of salvation that no one expected and few wanted to hear is wiser than all of the great wisdom, all of the great philosophy, all of the great academia that this world has ever produced. The weakness of God, God the Son becoming a humble servant and a mortal man facing hunger, temptation, loss, sorrow, pain, and eventually death is stronger than any of the heroes of old or now, any armies, any kings, any schemes of man. Why? Because only in this gospel is life. Only in this gospel is hope. 
and forgiveness and life not only in this world, but life forever. See Plato and Homer, any others you could name, Aristotle, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Richard Dawkins, they can't offer you anything for the salvation of your souls. They didn't die for your sins, and they didn't know anyone who had or could. But Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we could not and died the sinner's death that we deserved. He has done what no one could do to solve the one problem that no one else could do anything about. He offers us this gospel to be received by grace through faith for the salvation of our souls. So what about you tonight? What do you do with this gospel? Maybe you sit here like the Greeks and Jews of Paul's day or the skeptics of our day and think that this is foolishness. Well, friends, there is no life outside of this gospel. Your wisdom and your power will not save you from death. And for however good you think you are, you have sinned against a holy God. You have not obeyed him perfectly, and for this you deserve judgment. But in Christ, forgiveness of sins and everlasting life are offered to you if you will repent and believe. Perhaps you are in Christ, but you are discouraged because the people around you reject the gospel or even reject you because you're a Christian. You might think you're doing something wrong. You don't know why they won't believe. Well, as Paul has made it very clear here tonight, the effectiveness of the gospel is not in our work. It's not in our wisdom. It's not in our power. It is the work of God. And so pray for God by his Holy Spirit to work in the lives of these people that you know, these people that you care about, that they may be brought to salvation, that they may be brought to trust in God. Maybe you struggle against the criticisms and attacks of this present day. The gospel and Christ's church seem under attack from all sides. Well, rest assured, this is not a strange or new development was clearly going on at the time of Paul, even as it's still going on now. And yet for all of the world's resistance and mockery and criticism, we have something they don't have and can't have apart from God's action. We have the wisdom and power of God in this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is more wise than any wisdom the world has. It is more powerful than any power the world could ever offer. And so let us remain confident in this gospel, whatever life brings. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom and your power, which are manifest in the gospel, though it in so many ways goes against what the world tries to offer and what the world believes. It is only in your gospel that we have life and that we have hope and that we have forgiveness of sins. I pray that all of us here gathered tonight would believe this gospel, would rest confident in this gospel, knowing that we are safe with you. But I pray also that we would be faithful to take this gospel to the world around us, confident 
that you are the one who does the work, that you are the one who provides the increase, and we will give you all the glory when it comes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.